Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's once again time for 10 to 1, your favorite list podcast. I am the East Coast host, Josh, and I am joined, as always, by my um, Pacific Island host, Jen. I I think that that's actually pretty accurate. Yes, I am definitely the Pacific Island host. Not to be confused with Hawaiian host, which is a delicious and delectable candy that is chocolate over macadamia nuts. But I think I'm just as enjoyable. So there's that. I don't know. That sounds awesome. I mean, it is, but uh, have you heard me? I'm, I'm, I'm just, as, yeah. <laughs> yes, you are a delight. <laughs> ah, so, how are you doing? As if we I, haven't spent the last thirty minutes. I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm really good. I, I so far, 2023 has been full of one surprise after another. Nothing has yeah. gone the way that I thought it was going to go. Ah. Things have been up in the air and mm -hmm. crashed back down again. So many times that you'd think it was already March. And uh, yeah, we're only like four days into the year. So uh, I, I, my personal best feeling about 2023 is I'm just getting all the junk out of the way now so that the rest of the year can just roll along like I have sprayed WD-40 into all the crevices. That's where I'm going to go. How about you? Same. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. I, I will say though, I have watched this year so far eleven movies. Wow. Although to be fair, one of them is only a minute long. That's impressive. But it was on Letterboxd, so I thought it counts. Um, I keep a running list of the movies I'm watching this year and counting that one minute long movie it's called the four troublesome heads it's from 1898 <laughs> i thought it was a a pretty interesting look at you know them like trying out special effects in in the 19th century for right. film so it, it intrigued me um and a couple of uh a couple of the movies i watched were for this episode specifically nice so uh yeah they uh, I, I don't want to say they automatically made the list because I had so few. Some but... of them are pretty. So also some of the some of the some of the movies from this time period are pretty bad, pretty bad. Yeah, I think we're gonna see that. So uh, on my list, I, I I actually started the new year out by, and I know this is sort of I feel like it's sacrilege, but I have never seen any of the episodes until now of the Orville, and. I started Sacrilege. watching. I know, right? I started watching the Orville, and I'm so hooked. Yeah, I absolutely love it. It's just absolutely brilliantly written. At least the very first couple episodes. I'm so happy that we decided to watch it. Man, they do hit. They start. The, it's funny. It's very funny, and sometimes even irreverent. And I, I'm totally down for a lot of that. But they tackle some hard hitting ideas and unlike a lot of sitcoms it doesn't always have the resolution that you think it's going to have mm -hmm. sometimes it's like oh ow that hurt I, I mean it's just it's spectacular yeah big hats off love it 
sometimes it gives you that resolution and then you realize, wait, we're only halfway through the episode. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm actually really impressed by it. I'm just so happy that we started watching it. So it wasn't a movie, and uh, the first movie I think that we're going to actually start out with is, uh, well, we're going to do Lord of the Rings Marathon this weekend, because of course, um, but we're going to start off with uh, the Pale Blue Eye on mm. Netflix, coming up pretty soon here. So we'll probably start off with that, because we're definitely into the series junkie binge right now. I, I'm going to say, uh, you know, slightly speaking of Seth MacFarlane, I finally watched A Million Ways to Die in the West. Oh, yeah, that's good. I like that. I laughed. I'm like, why are people saying this is the worst thing ever? Because I've laughed so much, especially it's, with all the cameos. And I'm like, I know them. It, it's silly. It, it's silly. And, and, and I do. And I think, see, sometimes I think people misunderstand uh irreverence for being insulting and it's really you really have to you know put on a kind of comedy filter to get that irreverence is not mm -hmm. insulting and that's tough and you know I, yeah. I think that that definitely can be a thing i mean i feel the same way about like i can totally watch bob's burgers and i can watch um uh I can watch what? He, what was that other one? Uh, now I totally forgot the name of it. But fa um, uh, American Family. Um, I can watch all of those. I cannot watch Family Guy. I, I cannot. Oh, I'm sorry, American Dad. I, I cannot watch uh, Family Guy because I feel like that one actually goes over the line. But mostly, the especially in the beginning the sort of like irreverent humor is just sort of like, this is actually really funny. It, it, but I, I can see why people like get to a line and then they're like, no, no, this is too far for me. But I really do like Thousand Ways to Die in the West. It's, it's actually really good. I thought it was a great movie about people that hate Westerns from people that love Westerns. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many homages to like the good stuff that came out of Hollywood, even even the stuff that's like so super tropey. But I mean, that's actually what makes it funny is that it's so super tropey. So good choice. <laughs> People die at the fair. It's I mean, there's just so many good. And there's, so, you know, the other thing that I think that's really good about it is there are so many, um, you know, call outs to this was so ridiculous. I mean, we, you know, we all loved this trope, but it's so ridiculous. And they just make fun of it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, so speaking of loving things, um, what did we make a list of things we love tonight? Okay, so this week we did our list of and you know this was kind of a niche list so i expect that we might get some crossover it might be a little bit you know we may end up talking about some movies together quite a bit here the genre if you will the niche is pre or i should say 1970s because i don't want to say pre 1970s science fiction earthbound movies so movies that took place on earth so not alien not you know out in the galaxy somewhere um but definitely have the science fiction flair 
and were shot and produced in the 1970s. Now, you know, this is actually, there are quite a few. Um, this is kind of a big tent to be in, but it's not a big tent of movies that sort of have an everyday household name feel. There are some, um, and then there are some that probably people just, either don't know about or are a little bit out of the mainstream so we'll see where this goes we'll see where it goes i'm, I'm kind of excited though because this is i was saying before the show that the 1970s produced a very eclectic amount well not amount it produced an eclectic type of movie we didn't have special effects in the way that we do now obviously but we had progressed with practical effects and with some really basic sort of screen elements that we could do a lot more than we had done in the 60s which was a prolific movie making time um and really kind of hone in on what was scary what was uh interesting we made science look a little bit more if you will sciency instead of just you know a, a a back panel with lights on it and stuff we actually started to make things that looked a little bit more like oh hey yeah you know what we know what it looked like uh in the apollo missions yeah we kind of know what things are supposed to be and that then led to a really kind of cool aspect of movie making which sort of then segues into the 1980s where we start getting a lot more special effects so uh, i feel like this was a really interesting time but in a way kind of feels a little bit provincial um i don't know what what did you think about putting together your list how'd you feel about the movies like in total well um Like again, I had a uh, fewer to to pull from because seventies Earth based science fiction was not something that had been um, pervasive in my movie watching over the years. So I did have to you know look up some stuff and watch it to mm-hmm. to kind of get a. I, I try to get like a a, a well rounded um, list together. So I watched some stuff that maybe I normally wouldn't have watched just to kind of get a feel for what the 70s were, you -hmm. know, as far as science fiction goes. And one of the things that instantly came to my mind when I was watching one of them was um, I absolutely understand the concept of cinema du fromage now. Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. You know, at first, you, you know, when we were doing that show with everybody i i had always had this like thing in the back of my head that was like so it's just bad movies and then as you know as we watched more movies and i'm like why is this on here it's not bad it's not bad and then you guys were trying to explain it's not about bad movies it's about cheesy movies right I, I just for some reason had this weird disconnect that i i couldn't quite you know grasp the concept and then as i'm watching you know one movie in particular um i'm like oh i get it right <laughs> and uh 
yeah, when we, I'll, I will definitely let you know which one that is when we get to it. Um, but that's that's what my list making experience was like. Well, that's I mean that actually sounds pretty good, and not only does that sound good, but it also sounds like it was uh, exactly on point because that's the way that I also look at a lot of 1970s movies. They uh, they inevitably were the movies that we look back on now and realize, oh my gosh, you know, the overacting, the 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 ridiculous props, the you know, sort of like okay, here's the vision. But then the vision becomes so lost in the cinema that the cinema actually takes over and not in a good way. Um, and in fact, my number 10 sort of gets to that point almost immediately. Now, I chose my list based on the movies that I thought had the most sort of um, 1970s both feel and the ones that I find the most memorable of seeing all of these movies. Um, they're not exactly what I would call the greatest movies. They are just the ones that I like the most. Um, so don't be looking on my list for any amounts of critical acclaim, although a lot of the movies on my list have kind of cult followings. Um, yeah, don't be looking for any Oscar-worthy movies on my list uh so yeah so there's that uh, i don't know how you feel about your list but uh i do think there's some some acclaim going on on my list but there's also a whole lot of cheese and <laughs> there's some that's like like right there solidly in the middle oh okay well it should be interesting so would you like to go first sure sure um all right Okay, my number 10. It is the movie that I was talking about that um, made me understand Cinema du Fromage. And what can, what can I say? It's... <sighs> I, I, okay, let me put it to you this way. On Letterboxd, I have it down as seen, but I have not rated it. Because huh. I don't know if I absolutely loved it or despised it it's just it's just so out there that i was literally left going i don't know how to feel about this movie <laughs> the what did i just see kind of a reaction yes yes and to kick off the decade i uh, went with 1970s roger corman classic gas oh god yeah <laughs> or its subtitle uh, it became necessary to destroy the world in order to save it Ooh, that's a solid number 10 what 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 can i okay basically if you haven't seen it when i think most of you haven't a gas is sort of let loose on the world and everybody over 25 dies and and to be clear the title of this movie is gas but then dash s s s s s s actually so it's not just gas it's like gas yes i just wanted to make that clear in case people go looking it up you won't find it under <laughs> gas and it's uh it's got a lot of hippies on it so in it so it's like you know it's a gas man <laughs> yeah that's true 
So what what is the movie about? Because it's not about the gas being let loose on the world. That happens in the first minute. Right. And it's it's like, sure, it's brought up every once in a while, but there's like has really nothing to do with the movie other than it sets up the world. But it's at its heart, it's a road movie where this guy, well, this group of people is kind of on their way to somewhere. And along the way, they, they start seeing these uh, different groups of people that are sort of, I, I, I can't get over the, how easily society just like stopped being society. <laughs> And everyone just reverted to their their natural cliques, like whether it's a, a football team or a motorcycle slash golf club. You know, it's it's funny to see how people just forgot how society works and, and just or, or refused to have society. Um, so so shortly after, um, you know, the gas is let loose. Uh, Cindy Williams, you know, um, Shirley from Laverne and Shirley kind of, <laughs> she's, she's definitely, uh, stands out, um, in this group, uh, because everything about her is almost completely absurd. Her, uh, she's pregnant and there's a lot of, well, I don't want to get into, into spoilery stuff because I, there's just so much weird stuff. Um, the one thing I will say though, that, um, you know, maybe it's a trigger warning for, for some people, but you know, today there's some things that just don't, you know, fly as well as maybe it did back then, or it doesn't make the same kind of statement that it would have back then. And that's, uh, all of the, the rapey stuff, you know? That's that's one real weird point of contention that, you know, looking at it from the 21st century lens, it's like, who guys, guys, that's just kind of cringy. But gas, um, I, I just don't know what else to say about it. It is just so damn weird. Um, so they, they, oh. One more thing. Special effects? Yeah, none. <laughs> That's pretty much it. No. Gunfights? Eh. We'll, th we'll throw in some sound. Um, will anybody be firing anything? Nope. Will the guns look like they're firing? Not even a little bit. But of course, it's Roger Corman, so everything is... It's not like he didn't have the money to do that kind of stuff, so it just looks cheap. I, what? I'm not at the level that I need to be to really, you know, break down what everything in this film means. But, you know, it's got a, there's a reason for it. And maybe it was just because he thought it was funny. I don't know. I only saw it the one time, but it made my, uh, made my number 10, uh, gas dot dash S dash S dash dash S. I, I feel crazy. Just, talking about it so th this this movie is sort of like a a fairly 
it's a 1970s very typical kind of um bordering on um cheesy <laughs> i mean it is cheesy but it's it but it but it, it's also the kind of movie that i feel like is uh, very typical where there was a good idea and a really solid premise and the cinema the actual act of shooting the movie seems to have somehow corrupted is not the right word but you get the idea um it seems to have sort of changed what they could do with the idea based on how they shot the movie um and i feel like this happens with a lot of movies in the 70s that that the limitations of shooting the movie leads to a, a bit of a destruction of the premise of the movie and the reason that i bring this up is because it's such an odd change from the 1960s when the premise of the movie was you know like of the utmost importance and if you couldn't do something with special effects you either didn't do it or made it appear off screen or used shadows or whatever and in the 1970s that's not what was happening and so a lot of things feel so over the top in the 70s and then of course there's all of the exploitation stuff which will always go down in history as being a part of the decades that was the 70s there was so much exploitation of you know uh sort of subverted uh ideas that just we really had a long way to come uh based on where we are now if you look back at the 70s um and some of that has to do with sexuality like in gas uh and even just our relationship between being young and being old was just, yeah, there's a lot, but it, that I think that that was a good solid choice. That was actually a good solid choice. Thank you. So, okay. So my number 10, and I'm going to go through these really fast. My number 10 um, there, it's actually a split between two movies. I'm sorry. I, I just, there, there's a theme here and it's important. I feel like, and I couldn't put them in sequential order because they don't fit in that order. It's okay. Um, I cheated too. <laughs> um my first the first part of it is a movie called invasion of the bee girls and when you're talking about exploitation this one definitely is exactly that um the premise of this movie is basically um there's like an elite squad <clears throat> that um for lack of a better way of saying it they seduce people to death um, it, it it almost feels like, you know, somebody's fan fiction, almost erotic fan fiction, that somebody was like, oh, let's make this into a movie. It's going to be so great. And the but the but the point underneath it is actually a really cool idea, which is sort of like altering DNA, you know, creating subspecies, which we were really interested in in the 70s, it seems like, based on the just sheer volume of both not understanding the science and also thinking that there were other things possible. Um, it, it, it actually made for really cool ideas. So uh invasion of the bee girls is 
definitely one of those very uh, weird kind of films that doesn't always follow standard tropes, but it is tropey. Um, there are um, there are def th th there are ideas in here that sort of are throwbacks to you know hey uh, sexual abstinence is actually like a virtue um, it, like a virtue in terms of but only women need to be chased of course um, and there's you know some like morality preaching going on but then there's also this idea that these killers are so good at what they do that you know they basically have sex with people until they die of uh of heart their heart gives out and and their heart gives out and so then nobody really knows what really happened because well they just died of you know heart failure um it's kind of silly but it's but i do feel like this was one of those films that was trying really hard to you know show that femininity had a certain place that you know hey maybe the era the equal rights amendment wasn't all it was cracked up to be because you see look through this subvertive lens and you'll see that hey maybe females being just on their own look at what happens all these crazy things it, it's it's actually quite interesting um so from a cultural standpoint i really thought that this needed to be on the list okay but my pick for this and you know i have to say this needs a full disclosure this movie got three percent on rotten tomatoes you heard that right three percent it's from 1977 and it involves some of the most unique and crazy kaiju storytelling without them actually being japanese kaijus uh that i think i've ever seen I saw this movie many years ago and was I had one of those similar moments of like, what the hell is this? It's called Empire of the Ants. Now, one of the things that I find so interesting about this is they used these kinds of layered uh, filmmaking, well, it's it's a layered technique anyway, where they do these super close-ups of the ants doing things, and then they put the people in reacting to this, okay? And so it comes off being kind of ridiculous, but yet not exactly as ridiculous as, say, Night of the Lepus, which did not make my list, but is absolutely worth watching if you want to laugh really hard. Night of the Lepus is about giant killer rabbits, by the way. Um, so Empire of the Ants actually follows a fairly interesting story. Um, and, you know, there it has all of the good kaiju storytelling with giant creatures and how man has to somehow figure out how to manipulate or get rid of these giant creatures uh, without really understanding what is happening um, on the on the most basic level um joan crawford i think is the one who won or was nominated for an award in this movie which does not seem to jive with the fact that like i said it got a three percent on rotten tomatoes but it is the kind of movie that is so typical of the 1970s if 
we were to take out, um, you know, none of the Godzilla movies actually made my list, although they could have, but none of the Godzilla movies made my list. I felt like Empire of the Ants was actually a better sort of look at what the giant monster storytelling was really all about because the through the use of practical effects which are like you know these giant props that they used and this layering technique we can really see that they were trying so hard to tell giant kaiju stories without having and I'm sorry, it was Joan Collins, not Joan Crawford. Uh, Joan Collins was the one that won the award. Um, without having the benefit of, you know, massive special effects or, you know, a huge, huge budget. Um, the other thing that which I find super interesting about this is principal photography on this uh, was done very remotely. And so, you know, they had all kinds of issues and problems with getting this movie made. And when you see some of the things that are happening on screen, some of it really feels like serious misery. And I think that the actor's experience in this unintentionally created some really great moments. So my pick for number 10, Invasion of the B-Girls, which is the more exploitation version of the 1970s altogether, and Empire of the Ants, which is the giant ant kaiju movie. Um, again, don't be looking for any of these to fulfill any you know, deep-seated need for excellent cinema. But boy, if you're looking for a representation of the 70s, these two movies are where it's at. Great picks. Have I'm, you seen either of them? No, no. <laughs> okay, then. I can't say that I have. But <laughs> I, I wanted to, you know, be a part of things. So great picks. <laughs> well, if you do get a chance, uh, you'll have to let me know at least of, at least tell me what you think about uh, Empire of the Ants. I would be very interested to hear what you have to say about that. Well, let's see. The old letterbox has to say 1977 directed by Burt Gordon not available to stream but it's set to no it, it's it, it it is this this movie in particular I actually found in the uh, TCM catalog um, I don't think that it's available on HBO Max but it is available in the TCM catalog so well added to the watch list. It's very fun. Glad Letterbox lets me keep track of these things. Give me money. <laughs> Please sponsor the show. Uh, you know, yeah. Or at least premium membership. <laughs> Just <laughs> talk about you all the time. And so, my number nine is not my cheat answer. That's that's coming later. But my number nine is a movie that we've actually talked about on the show before, and okay. it is called. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, I do love that. I mean, what can I say that we haven't said on this show already? Other than Attack of the Killer Tomatoes by John DeBello is an absolutely hilarious movie. And it's even kind of creepy at points. It'll, it'll definitely make you look at your uh, catch-up in a different way. For those of you that don't know and... <laughs> Well, guess what? The title says everything. In tom tomatoes are made sentient 
and they start, uh, well, I'll just use the word they use, revolting against humanity and killing people a la the birds. You know, they're cornering people and just, you know. It's epic. It is a, <laughs> I almost said it was a great movie. It's a fun movie. And it is great, a great time to watch. Is it, uh, you know, top of the line special effects? You know what? Just yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> for for what it's going for, I think absolutely. It is a movie that is incredibly self-aware of of what it is and what it wants to be, and it nails every note like it's freaking Celine Dion. Who has not been uh, made one of the top 100 singers of all time for some <laughs> relevancy news? Anyway, I don't like to say that. Oh, people only look at you know, people only give it negative reviews because they don't get it. Well, I think that's kind of the case here, because if you're if you're watching this movie. And you're you're giving it a low review. It, it's kind of like you're missing the joke, right? I, without irony, have said the best movie of 2022 is Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And you know, people people challenge a statement like that. And I said, look, out of all the movies that I've seen, that's the one that knew what it wanted to be. And absolutely brought it home in every scene. There was nothing lost. That's when when you hit your goal 100%. To me, that's, you know, that's quality. And Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is another one of those movies that, you know, it knows what it's trying to be. And then it absolutely crushes every aspect of it. Yeah. Yep, I agree. And that's why it's my number nine. Okay, well, I'm going to go right into my number nine. And it is uh, a movie that was based on a book by a man named Roger Azalenzi. Um, There was actually uh, quite a... Um, at the time that this book was actually released, there was a lot of buzz about it. It was really good. I chose this because... <laughs> okay not a great movie it is as we were talking about before sort of the epitome of cheesy 70s movies um without so much intentional humor but it's some of it's still funny there are giant killer cockroaches there are all kinds of crazy creatures that you know exist on earth but have somehow been mutated and made enormous now one of the things that that I think that this sort of really encapsulates is the idea that during the seventies, we were absolutely terrified of radiation. We were terrified of what radiation would do to us. We were terrified of nuclear war. Um, we were, you know, at standoffs. We, we, we really felt as if radiation was going to be the death of all of us. And who knows, maybe it will be in the future too. But I also picked it because this movie in particular really seemed to launch a 
thousand tropes in movie making and storytelling for the post-apocalyptic genre. Um, there is a man, his name is actually uh, Damn Tanner. Tanner, I think is his name. Um, but his dad, when he was born, saw that he had another son and basically just said, well, damnation. And so his name became Damn. Yeah, very silly. Um, I actually remember reading this book. I used to read a ton of science fiction when I was younger. Um, and I didn't even know that there was a movie that had been made for it until, um, I don't know, maybe 10 or so years ago. And I found it. And wow, it was terrible. But this is the kind of movie that I think the 1970s kind of gets in a way that we don't even understand anymore. I don't, I mean, even at the time, I don't think people really loved this movie, but they were really attracted to the idea. And all my number one pick actually will explain a, a kind of uh, road, if you will, that I think that this movie not that this movie didn't do well but that sort of gets to the point of it all um the other thing about this movie that i think is makes it a uh, a list choice good pick is in the 70s the cast of even very cheesy movies was good um and i these guys really did give it their all uh, a man named uh Jan Michael Vincent played uh Tanner and he at the time was you know kind of a, a big thing in Hollywood he was definitely an up-and-coming star I don't think this movie did anything for his career aside from giving him a bit of notoriety um but he was you know a heartthrob he was you know just really kind of on top of his uh game and that is definitely something that continues to be a theme in the 70s, where the movies, for good or for bad, had really name-worthy casts, even when the movies were terrible. And sometimes I kind of wonder, you know, whether people were, whether actors were looking at these films and accepting them on the premise that they thought that they might be good, not understanding uh, some post-production stuff and what it would actually be like. But I can't imagine, I just can't imagine uh, Jen Michael Vincent being out there battling imaginary giant cockroaches and not feeling like, wow, this is going to be crazy. Um, special effects are not great. They are extremely cheesy. There's a lot of weird stuff that's going on. But the idea of this like hulled tank that is radiation proof is super cool. He has to drive it across the country. Um, in fact, at one point in the book, he drives it across this place, this road that was super familiar to me because I actually lived right near that road. So I was like, oh, yay. It didn't really make it into the movie, but yeah, I just kind of pretended that it was there. Um, it's like I said, it's not a big, uh, it's not a big, you know, oh, this is such an epic story. 
But I do find that here in this era with these niche films that Damnation Alley is definitely a good representation of, this is where we got our ideas for what we wanted to pursue in a post-apocalyptic world. And I, I, I really like that. I give the, this particular era a lot of credit for providing us some of the nightmare fuel that then we got much better at in the 80s and in the 90s and then really created some crazy post-apocalyptic world. So number nine, Damnation Alley. It was released in 1977. And are we missing Josh? Or you are on mute, Josh. Sorry, I dropped my mouse and the batteries flew out of it. Oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to fix that. Did you suffer from any radiation leaks? Because, yes. you know, like I just said, that's a big fear. Be looking for any giant, enormous cockroaches now. Just, you know, be on the lookout. You never know when they might make their appearance. You know, I don't know if I told this story before. Uh, I'm going to make it real quick. You can just talk about fear of radiation and whatnot. You know, you and I uh, grew up in sort of the Cold War era a little bit. And back then, uh, well, I don't know about you, but for me, it was always kind of... It was definitely in the back of my mind that we could be blown up by nukes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then I went to live with my dad in Alaska. And I'm like, oh, Russia's right there. We could get blown up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then uh, this, this movie came out. It's called uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Oh, and right. My dad and I would see it on the 4th of July. Now, the wonderful thing about Anchorage, Alaska is you can pretty much get anywhere in town on the bike trails. So my dad and I would bike a lot of the places we, we could go in the summer. And, you know, go to baseball games. They had two minor league baseball came, uh, minor teams there. And um, every once in a while, we'd, you know, pop in for a game, things like that. The sun would go down very late, though. So um, fireworks would have to be delayed until, you know, late. So as we're coming back from the theater, it's like midnight. And I'm, you know, but nine, ten years old. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Um, and all of these fireworks are going off. After I'd just seen Terminator 2. Oh, no. Yeah. It uh, left me a little... Whew. I, I still get chills thinking about that night ride and all of the explosions going on around me. And like, huh? 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 We... Uh. we... I, I I I will say that the 1970s into the 1980s for sure, but the 1970s encapsulated, I think, a very a, a fear of nuclear fallout um, in a way that we hadn't really explored too much before, especially on screen, because 
we were just starting to understand not that we you know didn't have access to this information before but i feel like we had a lot of sort of expose material and uh journalistic reporting and stories being written about the effects of hiroshima and i think that in some ways we we sort of became a lot more anxious about the effects of radiation and also for some reason gamma rays uh gamma rays became this really big enormous point of uh, you know anything with a gamma ray even you know adjacent is going to be the downfall of mankind or give you superpowers or possibly turn something into a mutant version of what it was it's it was sort of like the science um glue that allowed you to create any idea that you wanted to give it a burst of gamma radiation but the radiation part the the you know hey here's what real radiation is we for some reason were very fixated in the 1970s on this idea that radiation was going to re-terraform our planet um and it, there's a lot of movies that follow this very same premise um in fact once again i will mention my number one pick also without saying it absolutely is about that and you can really see that the the impacts of it so okay Jesus. so your number eight pick my number eight is uh at the back end of the 70s but for those of you that haven't seen it but might have seen one of the movies in its franchise you might be surprised what i'm about to say about it i'm talking about 1979's mad max directed by george miller so we do absolutely have crossover on this one okay well i'll keep my uh, thoughts on it brief then because you're awesome. <laughs> That's all <laughs> great. Now, I know, um, at, at least as far as I'm concerned, when I think of Mad Max, I never, ever, ever think of the first film. Because it is just so different. It That's is the Road so... Warrior. What's that? That's the Road Warrior. The first film in the Mad Max franchise is the Road Warrior. Is it? Yes. Son of a... I mean, well, I'm just talking about Mad Max. Not Shaft. Okay, so the, the movie that you are referring to, Mad Max by mm -hmm. George, um, when this particular one is a little bit different than the, uh, than the first version of this, which... It, you know, I mean, it exists in the same universe and it sort of explains how um, it explains how the road warrior got to where he was. But the but the very first issuance of Mad Max was the road warrior. I don't know. Hmm. Well, let me, let me talk, I'm going to say what I thought about uh, this movie real quick. Go. Because uh, now I'm all the here. 
discombobulated. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it just threw me way off. All my all my comments just seem inconsequential because I feel so lost. You threw off my groove. <laughs> yeah, it has um, Jim Gibson. I want to say I I don't know. I none of this means anything to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> let me pull it together. <clears throat> okay. So Matt, okay, let, let, let me let me let me summarize because maybe you're just thinking of a different movie, right? So I'm, I'm, Mad I'm Max. Mad Max. That's the one with the bicycle gang, right? Uh, bicycle gang. That's the one with the motorcycle gang, right? Um, yeah, I'm pretty okay. sure. Okay, he's a cop. Goose is his partner. And it the the cars and everything look really weird, and it's. It's not quite post-apocalypse because I guess right. the apocalypse hasn't hit yet. Right. The road warrior is the one that happens after that. See, that's what I and, thought. And technically the road warrior is a 1980s film because it didn't come out until 1981. So that was Mad Max 2. Well, no. It's, I mean, it's called the road warrior. I suppose you could say Mad Max 2, but I don't think that's what it was addressed as. It was released as the Road Warrior. Oh, these crazy naming conventions. Okay, Mad Max 2 released as the Road Warrior. Okay. 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 I think I think my head is on right now. Okay. I'm talking about 1979's uh, Mad Max. He's a cop and Yeah, I liked it, but it just doesn't. I'm going to go back to my original thoughts. When you think of the series, at least I never think of this movie. Because it doesn't have the aesthetic as its subsequent movies. It doesn't have the, the nature of the things that came after it. This This one... Uh, in some ways seems borderline comedic at points because, you know, you look at it and it's like, it's a, not a very big budget Australian movie. This was definitely not uh, a studio, you know, masterpiece as uh, some of the, the future movies will be known as. And there is definitely a thousand percent less Tina Turner. <laughs> but it's it's just strange to see that the roots of this character uh, sort of I, I think when I saw it for the first time and I think that was last year when I saw it for the first time as an adult I'll, I'll just say as an adult because I've probably seen it when I was really really young um, after seeing it I thought you know what this is a you know, pretty solid prequel to um, the, the actual Mad Max movies. And maybe that doesn't really do this movie justice, but I thought watching it, it was a whole lot of backstory and nothing really setting up for the future. And to think that this this character of Max 
would go from this movie to Road Warrior and, and you know, I guess what technically be the same person, right? It it's, is the same person. It is quite the jump. To and, and it seems like there is definitely a chapter missing that gets us to uh, from one to the other. And I, I, I honestly wouldn't mind seeing that movie. But uh, overall, Mad Max is a, you know, it's kind of a fun ride, especially um, with the the props department, the, the, the designs of the costume. It's all just, it's all very Australian. And I'm, I dig it. I, I'm down for it. And that's why it's my number eight. Uh, someone, you, you can slap me now. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, okay, so I'm I'm going to interject two things about this, yes. and and I actually am. I'll mention it when it when I get to that particular uh, spot on my list. But I'm going to say that Mad Max was, I think, George Romero's. George Romero's. Uh, okay, uh, it would help if I didn't um, pull two different directors together. <clears throat> Let's try that again. Mad Max was 100% an epic study in character. So it you're right when you say that it didn't set up the post-apocalyptic world in a way that perhaps the Road Warrior really expands on, but it gives us a kind of character study into who he was and why he behaves the way that he does in the road warrior i i i don't think that there was necessarily um a, a george miller you know hey i have to explain all of these things about the coming apocalypse <clears throat> because as a storyteller he does show not tell a lot and he basically says look here's the world you're here you don't really need to know everything every small detail or how did this happen or why is this happening you just need to recognize that this is the world and mad max gives us a glimpse of what the road warrior sets up for us later which is these roving bands of motorcycle gangs of gangs in particular that terrorize people for all kinds of reasons but mostly to get resources where resources are scarce and i think in some ways mad max <clears throat> makes the case especially from the george miller's standpoint that character development is multi-pronged and that your movie can be impactful. It can have uh, a lot of action sequence, crazy action sequences, as a matter of fact. Um, and at the same time, it can also really delve into the needs and the underlying um, motivations for a character. That to me is what Mad Max is all about. This is I I actually think that Mad Max is one of the better of the uh, George Miller storytelling pieces 
I don't think it's his best cinema, but I think it is definitely one of his better storytelling pieces because we don't get to see this kind of epic characterization until we fast forward into the remake of Mad Max, where all of a sudden then the characters really do take on so much. I mean, they're huge, but in this one, and also, you know, this is another one where um, 1970s, we're dealing with a lot of what we thought were going to be scarcities. Um, the energy crisis was very real in the 1970s. Um, people were concerned that there were not going to be enough resources to basically get us through whatever we needed to get through. And I, I feel like Mad Max sort of pulls that into sharp focus. So. I didn't want to take up all the time, but I felt like that was important. I love this movie. I absolutely love it. It's just, it's brilliant. I love George Miller. Also brilliant. Very good. I, my, what I wanted to say was everything Jen said. Super, super cool. All right. Okay. Uh, my number eight movie, I'm going to spend very little time on because I know very few people have seen it, but it is worth a watch. Um, it is a, Japanese film called Blue Christmas. Um, this particular movie is crazy weird. People that are exposed to these UFO encounters develop blue blood. Now, that is crazy all by itself, and there's a lot around that. Um, but what subsequently happens is what I think makes this movie absolutely stunning. People that are found out to have this blue blood are basically treated as second-class citizens. Um, they are shunned. They are herded into places. Uh, they're stripped of liberties. All kinds of things that, you know, are the hallmark of basic prejudice that a society can have toward other members of the society. But they couch it in the science fiction trope of if you've been exposed to some kind of alien contact, this is what's in store for you. Both setting up this idea that, hey, you know what, alien contact may end up uh, being not what we think it's going to be, and that this is not a good thing. And then on the other side, it's also kind of a social study in basically what the Japanese kind of feel is almost inherently uh, a part of their culture in terms of xenophobia, but from the inside out. It is a really fascinating movie. Um, it really is a, a typification of a lot of ideas, including heavy racism, that we were experiencing in the 70s and that, you know, still sort of manifest today. Um, but the idea of being exposed to the alien or the UFO and developing this condition, which is easily identifiable, but not always, you know, like on site, makes a really interesting uh, movie to sort of digest. Um, it wasn't, you know, it, it's not like this movie, I think, is the best of the best of the best, 
but it has enough qualities to it that are really good um, that I think it is definitely worth watching. One thing I will say about this movie, which I think is maybe important, um, and that is the the idea that somehow um, mass hysteria is just something that a conspiracy theorist would fall for or, you know, somebody that isn't intellectual or whatever. You know, I, I definitely feel like this movie really sort of upends that and says, no, not really. Mass hysteria is something that can happen to any group at any time. And it really just takes some very small incidences to happen. And we all start to feel like we are on edge. Um, this, this, the movie is, is, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit because I'm a little bit conflicted about how to express it. I mean, obviously there is the, there's the absolute, um, you know, the Americans are kind of the bad guys and, um, and there's, you know, a lot of odd, but subtle, uh, political tones and shifts. Um, but it also makes this case for why it is that we are afraid of things that people do that we don't understand or experiences that people have had that we don't understand. Does it change you? Does it make you different? In this case, it really did make people different. But what was the cost of that? Um, it, it was really fascinating. I really liked it a lot. Um, the movie has this kind of almost documentary tone to it, which also makes it super intriguing. Um, and it's a lot different than anything that I have seen in, in even today. It's different than anything that I really have encountered. Um, a lot of the people that they deem the blue-blooded people are exiled to this camp in Siberia. And it is, it's crazy, all of the things that happen. I mean, there's so much bigotry. There's so much violence. There's so much just, you know, sort of like hysteria around this. And it it really does, it, it makes you feel anxious when you watch it. And I, I liked that um, because it really made me think about how we also treat other people. Um, so anyway, so uh, this was Blue Christmas. It was tight. It was actually released under a couple of other names too, but the title that I know it under is Blue Christmas. It was released in 1978. Um, it, the genre is science fiction and thriller and, um, and it's definitely worth watching. This is another one. I don't think you could find this on streaming. I mean, it's got a, like a cult following, but I don't think you could find this on streaming. And I've never been one to join cults. Yeah, sorry. I mean, you know. I've, uh, <laughs> it reminds me of what Creed Bratton says in The Office. Uh, it's like, uh, what, it, what, how's it go? Um, you know, when it comes to cult, I've been a leader and I've been a follower. Being a leader uh, makes more money. Being a follower is more fun. <laughs> there you go. And speaking of cults, th this my my number seven 
has quite the the massive cult following, but it's one we've talked about before on the show, and uh, I'm going to try and keep things uh, very succinct since we have definitely had deeper conversations about this film before. It is 1975's Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yay! And the crowd goes wild. I mean, how could I not include a movie on the list that has the time warp? That is science fiction-y, yes? Absolutely. And and just, you know, the whole um, uh, Frankenstein motif and with Dr. Frankenfurter, it, it's just, it's, it's there. You know, UFOs, uh, well, investigator. But I'm just thinking that there might be a little pushback for for some that are like, well, it's just not science fiction-y enough. Hmm. Well, you know what? I say it is. And you know who else says it? I don't want to say it. Letterboxd. (laughs) Keep saying their name. (laughs) Well, Letterboxd would know. So, yes. uh, It made my, my list because... Well, quite frankly, it is a delight of uh, a musical. And one, you know what? I'll, I'll go into this. Uh, go into this. It's something we haven't touched on when it comes to uh, Rocky Horror. You know what? You know what is synonymous with sci-fi and the fans in particular in the 21st century? What's that? Cosplay. Oh, yes, indeed. And if there was ever a movie that could maybe not necessarily be the absolute origin of of people getting together dressed as characters from film or television. This is definitely up there with, you know, I'd say an early, an early uh, version of what would just be commonly now known as cosplay where, where, you know, people on TikTok and, Twitch and, and whatever streaming platform there is, you know, they show off their costuming abilities. And I'd say a lot of them, especially when it comes to uh, like making sexy characters out of uh, just maybe characters that weren't originally uh, supposed to be so provocative, uh, doing that twist on I could definitely see having some origins with the Rocky Horror Picture Show and its rabid fan base. So if there if there was a movie that kind of it almost sets up what a fandom should be for the future, it's this one. So that is why it's my number seven. Nice. I also love Rocky Horror. It's one of my favorites. Okay. Um my number seven is a movie that um, sort of traumatized an entire generation, but it is so 70s. And so, again, I'm going to use uh, maybe the word uh, niche, but also a big giant social fear that we had at the time, which I think we have still um, not grappled with effectively. And so we still have movies that follow not maybe not this line, but definitely the idea that somehow AI is going to rise up and take us over. Um, this movie is called The Demon Seed. Um, 
so there's this there's a very brilliant uh scientist his name is dr alex harris and he develops this um computer slash machine called proteus 4. proteus is an incredibly intelligent design um in the, the days before what we would consider to be the internet, even though we did have networks and things like that, um, most people were not aware of these things. And this particular machine, which somehow becomes sentient in its own right, cures leukemia within hours of being, of basically coming online. Um, it's fantastic and it's, you know, hailed as being something enormous but what happens is and and this is something that we're you know if you if you're in gen z if you're even if you're a millennial you may not understand this quite as uh as much as people who lived before then um but computers used to be enormous it took massive amounts of space for the computing space that is now in your phone. I mean, it like it took rooms and rooms of computers in order to do that. Um, they were they certainly weren't more powerful than your phone. The reason that Proteus is so amazing is because uh, first is coding, but second because clearly Proteus becomes sentient, and Proteus's main drive at the after it thinks that it has fulfilled its mission is to procreate. And it really becomes a twisted and tangled story of the scientist's wife, ex-wife, actually, they're estranged. Well, they're estranged, they're not divorced. Um, and Proteus basically taking over uh, and drugging her and trying to impregnate her. Um, yeah, it sounds as terrible as it is. It is definitely um, one of those 1970s themes that I don't think that we would see today necessarily couched the same way. I think, you know, we would be very nuanced about it, whereas this movie is not nuanced about it at all. But it tackles one of the 1970s big, you know, issues with how technology could possibly rise up and become a threat to the human overlords that make it um, and what that might look like. But I think it also, you know, there's a, a more sort of nuanced idea behind this, which is what I kind of like about it. And that is, there is this idea that once something becomes sentient, it necessarily by our terms, because we can only measure sentience by our own standards, and so we believe that, you know, one of the biggest functions of uh, being human is the want or need to procreate. As humans, that's what we do. As living species, that's generally what they do. And so the idea that as a mechanical thing becomes sentient, that it would want to procreate, gives it this kind of science fiction element of, hey, this is what humanity, this is how it will take on its aspects of humanity um was kind of an interesting one it, it 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 you know lends a lot of questions um there were a lot of really difficult scenes in this movie um i mean just you know saying it straight out there there is the 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 machine itself drugs 
the woman, the uh, scientist, uh, estranged wife. And this all happens without her consent. She does not choose any of this stuff. What ends up happening toward the end of the movie is, I think, one of the sort of, uh, it's, I, I will say that this is one of the most um, disturbing ideas. The newborn actually grows. Um, there is a, 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 an odd sense of computer behavior to it, um, to the infant. Um, and the whole filming of the sequences where we're supposed to be understanding that this child is growing are so disturbing and so oddly shot that it gives you this sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm in an alternate reality sort of feel. Um, and for that, I give it a lot of props. It definitely was very different. Um, but I feel like this is a hundred percent right in the seventies genre style, both exploitation and, you know, Hey, we're hedging on serious problems with technology. We can't really trust it. And, but yes, we need it because look at cured leukemia and those kinds of things. Um, so I, I would say that this is, I don't want to say that it was a great movie, but it was definitely a movie worth seeing. This was 1977 was called the demon seed um, it was actually based on a novel, um, and it was also um, based on a book by Dean Koontz. So, added prop. If you like Dean Koontz, you really might like this. Okay. Okay. It's it's not one that I've seen, but it feels like it's right on the periphery of something I might have seen. Mm, yeah. It, it. I mean, it, it has... It it has some camp elements to it at this point because the special effects are not as brilliant as perhaps we would like them to be, but it's amazing in its uh, it's amazing in its affect I think and the questions that it presents and Dean Koontz is aside from Stephen King I think one of my favorite sort of like you know, question the unknown kind of authors. So mm -hmm. I feel like that might be why it translated so well. Okay. Okay. Well, then, um, my number six. And I'm sorry, but this is kind of where I cheated a little bit. Okay. Is it really a 1980s film, but you just... No. Okay. No. It's It follows all the criteria, for the most part, it, it doesn't exactly start out on Earth. But it, it, it like gets there immediately. So I was uh, I was worried a little bit. One, because I like I said, my pickings weren't plentiful, but I, I absolutely feel like maybe because 99% of the movie takes place on earth it should count so hopefully you'll you'll be you'll be down for this one um in 1978 uh people believed a man could fly I'm talking about superman from richard donner and yes it's it starts off on the planet krypton but like i said we get to we get to earth really quick and Quite frankly, in, in this particular 
um, year in this particular day and age, I really wanted to stress a couple of important things when it comes to Superman and the mythos and, and the fact that your your topic kind of led me into being able to talk about this is is all all the better. Um, what can I say? Christopher Reeve, he embodied what Superman was in this movie. You know, he's mild-mannered Clark Kent. He's he's a, as Superman, he's fun. He's not mopey. He is Superman. He's got a smirk. He's got, you know, the little curl. Superman is freaking Superman in this movie. And you, and you know what he does as Superman in this movie? He stops uh, not one, but two uh, nuclear issues. Um, helps with an earthquake and a busted dam. He's just all over the place doing what Superman does, and that's saving people. That is who Superman is. He saves people. No questions asked. He just does it. And, it, you know, comparatively speaking to what we have seen in recent years, um, this, this I, I, I don't know who wrote this. It, it's not attributed. But uh, they say that, you know, during the the climax where Superman, you know, has his big loss and he remembers uh, Jor-El's warning of not to, to manipulate human history. Um, but instead, well, he ignores that and, and takes Jonathan Kent's uh, words to, to heart and that, that there must be a reason you know, for him to be there, you know, to help humanity. And, and that is, that is the Jonathan Kent that I think everybody uh, knows the one that teaches his son Clark to be above all else, just a good person to, to help people. And I don't know how, how often I can stress that uh, helping part of Superman. It, it seems like so, so insane to to imagine a world where you have to remind people of what Superman's purpose is when it comes to film. Now, Richard Donner is uh, a, a very, very good director, and he showed off a lot of those chops in this movie because I'm going to say it, the special effects hold up, the performances, yeah. Yeah, I want to say it. the performances hold up. And it's a movie with Christopher Reeve, uh, Brando, Gene Hackman. It did everything, everything right as far as casting goes. And, and the, the reason why it's only my number six is because I thought maybe wasn't uh even even though it was off planet for just just a tiny bit of time um i thought that that might have uh, tainted the 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 uh the, the the list just a tad bit so i i dropped it down a few notches because overall it is uh still a wonderful movie and i think if you haven't seen the 1978 Superman, and you're, 
you know, a young Superman fan that has only seen something like Man of Steel, give it a shot. Give it a shot. You, you'll see the the demeanor that you know the the Kryptonian Boy Scout is is supposed to have, and and how he feels about humanity. That's what you're going to take away from 1978 Superman, and that's why it's my number six. I think it's great. Absolutely wonderful. Oops. <clears throat> if I could just add one small thing to this. Um, Superman in the in the early days, I should say, I don't know how to say this. This movie was sort of made before we had a lot of uh, tie-ins to either the DC universe or the Marvel universe or any of that stuff. I mean, we had some mm -hmm. small things, but not a lot. Um, and Superman kind of took on um, a life of his own, I think heavily influenced by the 1950s serial Superman, which, you know, kind of formed the Clark Kent on screen persona. Cause of course we always had the comics, um, but the on-screen persona of Clark Kent was very much emulated, I think, by Christopher Reeves. And one of the things that I truly appreciate about this movie was the fact that Superman was at all times a protector of humanity. There was no ambiguity about him being a protector. Yes, there were, I think, uh, moral dilemmas that he faced, and certainly the stakes felt very high. But his, But the idea that he would let a human suffer especially needlessly was absolutely out of the question. And somehow over decades, we lost sight of that became jaded and started to make Superman into a little bit of a, uh, a hole, uh, like not a protector of humanity, but a superhero with a chip on his shoulder. And I have never liked that. I, you know, I'm, I'm, sometimes stunned when I go back and watch the Man of Steel sort of stuff progressing because it feels to me like Superman doesn't care. I mean, he cares about the people that he cares about, but he's more like a gangster than he is the magnanimous, benevolent superhero that has nothing but love and generosity. And I feel like Christopher Reeves really emulates that there's not a you know i never get the impression from the christopher reeves superman that there is even a single malicious bad intention in his body yes you can he can get angry and yes he can do things that upend um and and you know th there's that but he's so good He's so wholesome, and I have to say, I love that. I absolutely feel like that is Superman. Superman is good. Truth, justice, and the American way, as they talk about in the 1950s TV serial, is kind of like the right sort of catchphrase for Superman, I feel like, to have. And we just veered so far away from that. Anyway, I really like it, and I loved Christopher Reeved. God rest him. <clears throat> okay. Uh, my number six pick. This is a movie that I think probably a good portion of people have seen or heard of in some way. Um, 
this movie was apparently, I didn't even know this until I went back and was like looking at stuff about this movie. Um, it was inspired in part by a Ray Bradbury story. Um, it morphed and took a whole bunch of turns because apparently the rights to that particular story had already been under contract. And so they weren't able to do what they wanted to do, but somehow they made a movie that is both what we were talking about before cheesy cinema and also high stakes <laughs> and it felt scary in in the most ridiculous ways i mean there are shots in this movie that are just of a building and they're terrifying and every time i see that building in any capacity i'm terrified i'm like oh, i'm never going in there um my biggest fear after I saw this movie, irrational as it is, was walking into any mausoleum for any reason at all. This particular movie is called, it was released in 1978. No, I'm sorry, 1979. Um, and it was called Phantasm. Um, for people that don't know, basically the story of Phantasm is there are beings from another dimension i think we can safely say I, I i feel like in later versions they kind of made it seem like maybe they were from another world like another planet but i think that in the original version it feels a little bit more like they're interdimensional creatures um and they run a funeral home and the people who die they basically take their bodies and they turn them they squish them into these little tiny creatures and the little tiny creatures then go about and do the bidding of well, who they call the tall man but apparently they're also being sent through this interdimensional portal which is two giant tuning forks in this one room and they are basically building some kind of army out of them um <clears throat> it certainly doesn't dwell in the in that region right it dwells in the characters becoming more and more suspicious of what's going on at the funeral home and what is really happening there is a weapon that the uh tall man can use that is this steel rotating ball and as it gets close to you it extends these stainless steel and whatever forks that jam into your head scariest stuff i swear and the, and so everybody is you know when you see the ball you know oh something really bad is going to happen um the the tall man himself is absolutely frightening um he actually is just an enormous person i mean enormous as in tall um and his on-screen presence is just terrifying it's just terrifying um there's only a couple of small locations in this movie and the threat of the movie is is simplistic in it's it's just a very basic kind of um story going on here but the theme of this movie which i feel like is a theme that we could easily just pick up and put into a movie today Older people don't listen to younger people. And sometimes if you listen, 
you'll hear something that perhaps could be very important. That's one aspect. The other aspect, I think, is our preoccupation with, especially in the 70s, uh, this uh, sort of idea that perhaps spirituality and what happens to us after we die is kind of a... Um, something different than what we thought it was. You know, we can maybe move to another dimension. There was a lot of uh, Shirley MacLaine stuff. There was a lot of sort of like the beginnings of new agey ideas. And this whole concept of interdimensional portaling was, I think, brilliantly done by creating this room, which with the tuning forts, which is kind of like a sound room. So the opening the portal was by hitting certain notes or hitting a certain note and having that resonant hum happen. Um, the special effects were actually quite interesting. They weren't fabulous, but they do basically stand up because a lot of them were just super practical effects. And it's the camera work in this movie that absolutely makes it just a perfect pick for a 1979 movie. There are so many running track scenes where the camera is following something and especially the mausoleum scenes, it feels so much like you are being chased. Really good stuff. I liked it a lot. In fact, a lot of this movie is about <laughs> running from one place to another, um, but really scary stuff. I, I absolutely love this movie and think it absolutely fits in this 1970s genre while still having some sci-fi aspects to it. So Phantasm 1979 is my pick for number six. Uh, not one I've seen, and but I ask, have one you I've seen heard of. Phantasm, Josh? I have not. It has not come across my uh, my watching, unfortunately. Josh, I'm here. I'm here. I guess you can't hear me. Okay. Yeah, everything sounds good on my end. And we lost Jen. Let's see if this works. Okay. As always, my equipment needs to fail at least once per podcast. So hopefully that was the requisite once and everything will be fine now. Hopefully. Because, uh, well, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully just the once. Let's hope. We'll cross my fingers. So we're going to the top five, huh? Top five. Top have you five. seen Phantasm, by the way? I, Did you see I have not seen Did... Phantasm. Okay. I just had to ask. But, uh, you know, it sounds interesting, and, and I've heard of it. So th I have that going for me so far. <laughs> and there are so many movies after Phantasm, which basically, you know, start to, like, expand all this lore. Some mm -hmm. of it gets really ridiculous, but it's still fun. I mean, even the stuff that is, like, really terrible is still fun. So I'll give the franchise that. Okay. Well, um. It'll probably make it onto my my list soon enough, you know. It's I mean, it's it's already on my watch list. I know that, but uh, hopefully, I can get it uh, in front of my eyeballs pretty soon. Awesome. So uh, my number five, I'm going to keep things um, pretty pretty uh, quick here because again, it's something we've talked about before, and I I'd hate to think somebody's tuning in and and you know hearing us. 
uh, rehash the the same talking points from from movies, and uh, just trying to keep things a little fresh, much like they did last year. Last year, when this movie is set, uh, the the movie was made in 1973. It's set in 2022. Oh no! It's Soylent Green. Oh no! What, what's I couldn't. Wrong? I could not bring myself to pick this movie. Why not? I couldn't because. Because despite the fact that I picked other cheesy movies on my list, this movie has got to be one of the most overacted movies I think I can remember seeing. It's people! I just... I mean, everything in this movie is so over-the-top acted. <laughs> but it is a good movie. Okay, continue. I, I, the, the only thing I'm going to say that we probably haven't touched on before is um, when... When they go to the the clinic, and the you know sitting in the chair, and the the music is playing, and the the beautiful imagery is shown, that is, I don't know, that is just a scene that strikes a major chord with me. You know the 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 I don't know what the, what the proper word is to describe how the the finality of life versus the beauty of life going on at the same time, you know, one watching the other, mm. that, that's, uh, that's something that hits really close to home for some reason. I don't know. I always get the feels on, on that particular scene. Um, but overall it is, I'd say a classic, uh, we'll say a classic cheesy film, because quite frankly, that's what it is. And it's definitely worth every second that is spent watching it. So if you haven't watched the one like green, uh, get on it. it. It's definitely something that should be experienced before, you know, you uh, you become dinner. This is another movie from the 70s that deals specifically, I think, with a 70s theme, which is lack of resources, which people were very concerned about. Um, and I, you know, I just remembered that there is another aspect to the 70s, which was sort of on everybody's mind. And that was sort of this idea of runaway inflation and nobody was going to be able to afford food anymore. And, you know, the world was going to come to a screeching halt because of it. And I feel like Soylent Green really captures that feeling of, oh, the world has such limited resources. We're going oh, to yeah. end up eating people. Yeah. So. And that big reveal at the end, it's sorry for the spoilers, but I mean, quite frankly, it's so ingrained into pop culture at this point. You should know. Like if if you've watched The Simpsons, you know what it is. Exactly. Right, you're number five. Okay, my number five is, uh, and I feel like I've talked about this movie before, although I don't know if I've talked about it here. So we'll just recap it real briefly because I think everybody knows this movie. It's The Island of Doctor Moreau. Um, the Island of Doctor Moreau is. I don't. I I I am struggling actually to explain how awesome I found this movie. I almost feel like this should have been um, uh, a pick 
Oh, wait a minute. Am I, am I, I think I'm in the wrong list. I'm so sorry. Okay. I am in the wrong list. Um, although Island of Dr. Moreau is a fabulous movie. Um, actually, I chose this movie and then realized that the, there's a 1970s edition or rendition of this and not the version that I thought it was. So I took it off the list and this is where I put Mad Max. So Mad Max is actually on this list at number five. We've already talked about it. So I actually don't even need to talk about it at all. Okay. Absolutely crushed it. All right. So you are at number four. <laughs> number four. Uh, my number four is from 1977. And I think for those of you that know me, you, you should kind of expected it to, to be on the list. But 1977, Steven Spielberg uh, released Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This is one of those movies that it's about aliens, but it's not about aliens. That's, I think, what sets it apart uh, than, than most of these like science fiction films, especially of the time. What instead you have is the story of just this guy, uh, Roy. He's, he's just a guy, but he, 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 his life becomes inexplicably intertwined with the aliens, essentially. Um, I mean, they don't, they're, they aren't really there, but they're always there. I'm not really sure I'm explaining that correctly. He, he becomes so hyper-focused on these these feelings these instincts that his 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 behavior changes and his family is you know kind of like they're kind of going mad because he, they think he's losing his mind and and it results in this big trip to um I really don't want to go into spoiler territory here but uh big trip uh huge location iconic in in every sense of the word when we you know when we get to the kind of the the meaning of close encounters of the third kind and and everything that entails steven spielberg at the time was he he's not steve he wasn't steven spielberg just yet he he wasn't the guy that we know now that basically can do virtually, I say virtually, nothing wrong. This was only his, what, second, second or third major film. This was yeah. definitely before he had, you know, decades worth of credits um, behind him. And the fact that he was able to take this this story kind of like jaws where you don't see the shark um for quite a while but it builds the anticipation and and, and in close encounters of the third kind you, you don't see um really what is causing the the stuff that's going on for him but 
it's it's building this underlying tension to where you'd know it's there. So he kind of kept on uh, a theme uh, for the suspense. And like Jaws, it culminates into a, a wonderful release. Um, and, and memorable moments. Uh, some of the most memorable, you know, in film history that this guy, you know, brings us. So to go from, <clears throat> excuse me. Two years earlier, Jaws, uh, the birth of the summer blockbuster, and and two years later, he's able to to make this sort of subdued alien film. When for the past what 20, 30 years, when it comes to alien movies, it's it's all very over the top, bleep blop, or or you know just vicious, um, you know Earth destroyers, whatever the case may be. This was, I think, a different take at the time, and, and Steven Spielberg really left his fingerprints on on alien uh, on cinematic alien history with this one, and that's why it's my number four. Nice. Also, uh, catchiest theme ever. <laughs> um, basic tonal notes, and I even learned the sign language that went along with it. I loved that film. Absolutely loved it. Um, Devil's Tower is now incredibly iconic simply because of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, okay. <clears throat> My number... Also, just by the way, I saw that movie in a drive-in theater and was so mesmerized that I could... I, I, I felt like I had to see it again. <laughs> so, I did. Um, but I was... God, that, that movie was crazy. Okay, uh, my number... My number... Let's see. My number four. I'm at number four. Okay. My number four is a movie called The Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, boy. Okay. This movie had a major impact on me because I read it before I saw this. Um, the Andromeda Strain is a this is one of those movies that sort of <clears throat> veers in territory like okay you know the main character okay let's let's start over the andromeda strain was written by michael crichton the same man of jurassic park fame um what makes the Andromeda strain, I think, so interesting is the, and I'm going to talk about the movie because I, there's a lot that happens in the book that clearly doesn't happen in the movie. And they condense and consolidate so much that, yeah, you don't really get the biggest, fullest picture, but let's go with it. Um, first thing that I love about this movie are the special effects. <clears throat> the special effects for Andromeda strain are amazing they were done by um they were done by a man named douglas thirdville i believe and it is it's it's some of the aspects in this film feel very off because they use uh split screen but they do it so effectively that it becomes part of the cinematic experience um i really really loved that um I, I guess, you know, the best way to describe 
sort of what happens in the Andromeda strain is scientific hubris sort of doesn't work. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that I don't, I actually don't want to give a lot away about this movie because I feel like this is one of those movies that you would really love if you see it and don't know a lot about it. Um, but I will say that there is a kind of virus um, involved and it, what they think originally is going on is actually not a, I mean, well, I should say they think it's a virus. It's actually not. It's an alien organism, I guess I'd say. Um, and it does things to people. It contaminates the people that are originally infected with it. And then as they come down, uh, as they come to, as they basically, as they, you know, meet up with other people, crazy stuff begins to happen. Um, this is one of those movies though, that I think has the, both the scientific kind of um, preoccupation with what else is happening out there in the universe and how it could adversely affect us. Um, it also feels oddly like it's a little bit, um, you know, uh, paranoia, but also at the same time, just coming off of our, you know, visits to the moon and plans to go explore the universe in some ways, we very much felt, I think, um, at that particular time that the universe was maybe a lot more hostile than we anticipate. You know, you have Close Encounters on Josh's pick that is, hey, you know, the aliens are actually friendly and they want to meet us and, you know, we're misunderstanding what it is that they're trying to do. And then you have things like the Andromeda strain where it's like, oh, you know, okay, maybe it's not like overtly hostile, but this is really dangerous to play with. Um, there's some really interesting aspects to the Andromeda strain, which oddly remind me of the way that we handle COVID, which is crazy. Um, but lots of really cool kind of, you know, undeveloped, but very like, you know, yeah, we're thinking about these ideas in science. Um, you know, it doesn't stand up very well to today's science, but it does, I think, really show where people were in the 70s in terms of their thinking with the science fiction or with the science and the fiction being a part of narrative storytelling. Like, you know, here's some people that were affected by this, but the real story is not just how they were affected by it, but what they do in response. How does everybody respond to this? Um, and it's it's sort of crazy. Um, there's so much that's happening here and so many things that we don't really understand. Um, you know, that it could be, that it could actually be uh, the alien pathogen, but I feel like we leave everything so open in this movie that like, hmm, maybe there's something else happening here. Like maybe uh, there's a, a bigger picture to be had. Um, the other thing that I really like about this movie is I really loved the fact that 
in the 70s especially, there was a kind of a love-hate relationship with science. Yes, we love our science, but no, we actually also kind of hate it. Um, so anyway, so that gets my number four pick, The Andromeda Strain. And that was released, I believe, in 19... Was it 1970? It was 19, oh, no, it was 1971. 1971. So early 70s. Like a lot of people in the 90s, I went, had myself a... Um, Big old Michael Crichton kick. So I, I wound up reading a lot of his books back when I was oh, in high cool. school. And uh, that was one of them. So haven't seen the movie, but I'm going to give myself uh, half a point for that. The, there's actually a remake to this movie as well, just so you I know. Heard. Yeah. So, And I think that the remake uh, did something a little bit different. Fun, but different. Well, different doesn't always have to be bad and especially if it's fun so um there you go yeah it was it, it was good um but it wasn't the same like if you want if you want to see what i think the uh, yeah, i should bring this up right now hold uh, just hold on for one second also during the 1970s and this is something that i think actually um we could take note of today adaptations in the 70s were far more oh, um look, we have a book to tell, so we're going to try to hit the high points. Um, and maybe we're not going to get them all, but we're going to try to hit the high points. Um, we have gotten to the point in adaptations where adaptations are almost fan fiction material based on the source of a book. And I, I do feel like it's worth mentioning that that is why a lot of source material that was an adaptation from a book in the 70s and even in the 80s was a lot more faithful to the original source than we see in the 90s and the 2000s and then you know our 2010 and 20 decades we just don't do that anymore um we have a much more loose and fast affiliation with source material and we don't play the same kinds of ways that we used to bringing things to screen so i just thought i'd mention that another excellent point uh, especially since we both are avid readers as well as movie fans, it's it can sometimes be frustrating to see that you know the two mediums don't always play nice together. No, no, they really don't. And sometimes I think uh, the a movie viewer who really loves a particular adaptation is perhaps disappointed by what they by what it actually is. And vice versa, obviously. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I think it runs both ways. Absolutely. Are we ready for my number three? We're ready. Go. All right. In 1979, Nicholas Meyer gave us a movie called Time After Time. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this, the story is... No, I'm just going to say it's pretty awesome, okay? It involves H.G. Um, Wells, who actually builds the time machine from his, you know, story, The Time Machine. And Jack the Ripper steals it and goes to 1970s San Francisco. Well, he doesn't go there, per se. It's uh, the, the time machine is moved there as part of a tribute to H.G. Wells. And 
so when they time travel to the seventies, because he, you know, HG goes after him, of course, because he has to stop him from uh, wreaking havoc on what he thought would be a utopian future. You know, oh, we'll finally be beyond war. So that that's that's that was his goal. He thought it was he was a man before his time, um, and you know, and in a lot of ways, kinda. But Jack the Ripper, his his whole uh, mentality was, no, no, people are like me, and that's where you're wrong, because you know they're friends and. Of course, H.G. Wells doesn't know he's Jack the Ripper. Anyway, I'm telling the whole story here. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do. But naturally, it's the 70s, so there's going to be a love interest for H.G. Wells. And uh, someone to, you know, I guess be in peril, a uh, reason for him to want to fight Jack the Ripper in, in, in a sense. And the the thing about this is it, it could have easily just gone a straight this is a fish out of water comedy and don't get me wrong the 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 stuff where hg wells is going around san francisco and he's just like i don't know what anything is it's it's great absolutely love it but it also takes itself a bit seriously too to 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 actually take the time um, to really tell, a, I'd say, a good story uh, about time travelers. Even even if um, one of them had the, the best of intentions, you know, he, he's got to come to realize you know, sometimes uh, bad things happen even with the best of intentions. So, yeah, that's basically what the movie's about it it's got an awesome young mary steen virgin in it and you know it's the second movie that i remember her from that involves uh heavy influence in plot by a science fiction author the other one of course being uh back to the future part three where she has a fascination with jules verne same as Dr. Emmett L. Brown, but that's a story for another time. Time After Time is... I watched it again. It was, it was one of the movies that I watched this year. And I read the premise, and I'm like, I love time travel. Time travel is like my favorite thing uh, when it comes to stories. And the funny, <laughs> the funny bit is when I watched this, I realized I've seen this before. I might have been like seven years old, but I've seen this before. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes something happens so far back where you only have bits of, you know, flashes of memory of this thing that you just, you can't really place. You know, you know that you saw it. You don't know what it is, but you know the imagery. And this is one of those things. So finally being able to kind of put those those images to an actual film title, it felt like closure in a way. And I was very, very glad to be able to do that. Um, anyway, back to the movie. It was, like I said, a, a an enjoyable watch for me. Um, it was the first movie I watched of this new year. and. When it comes to science fiction, 
uh, science fiction, you will never, ever go wrong, in my humble opinion, by using science uh, and, and time travel, you know, throw, throwing it together and just making a really cool little um, adventure slash uh, mystery, I guess, because HG is trying to figure out what's going on. It's a fun movie, and that's why it's my number three. Okay. I, I actually do like that movie. I, I feel like that was a, also a good choice. Um, <clears throat> okay, my number three movie. Oh, mine, yeah, okay, my number three movie. Yep. Um, I was getting confused because I have two that are that I have similar things to say about. Um, in 1973, a movie was released called The Crazies. And The Crazies, it, it had a remake. Um, it was a, I would say, a fairly successful remake. Um, and was pretty good. I actually liked the uh, later remake. But if you watch the 1973 The Crazies, uh, a very similar thing happens. Um, where there is basically this substance that turns people into zombies. Now, it was directed by George A. Romero, um, and it stars Lane Carroll and Will McMillian. Um, this movie is a bit different from... Um, the remake so if you haven't seen if you've only seen the remake it's kind of worth it to watch the original because i feel like this has more of the george a romero flair to it um george a romero is absolutely the king of zombie behavior and culture and this definitely you know it falls in line with that, but also, I think, launched a thousand tropes. We don't recognize them anymore as coming from the crazies because we just don't see it there. But so many modern zombie movies sort of fall into some of these trope lines. Um, so what happens is um, there, there a lot of things in the beginning feel a bit like uh, a night of the living dead kind of setup. Um, there are, th there's this like army presence, um, a, a plane crash lands and apparently it was carrying some kind of bioweapon and it, infects the entire town's water supply <clears throat> and the um i believe like in although i don't know if they mention it in the remake but it, it has a code name the code name is trixie and basically it infects everybody in the town and it affects people in the town a little bit differently like each person kind of responds a little bit differently um they become homicidal they become uh, crazy and hysterical, as the name mentions. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of, as people become infected, that people, you know, end up not knowing what's really going on because it's kind of slow at first. 
And then when you find out what's really going on, it's terrifying because you realize that basically almost everyone has been infected. A um, couple of people kind of escape and they had put everybody into quarantine. Um, when they escape, some other things happen along the way and they have to kind of figure out what's going on. And it becomes pretty clear uh, eventually that... Um, this is not going to be contained to just our small town in Evans City, Pennsylvania. Um, there is, I, I believe in this one, there's a potential cure, um, but it ends up that the cure is kind of demolished um, because the townspeople who are infected basically stampede and break free from quarantine and all of a sudden they're kind of out and about uh it's kind of a it's one of those like you know you know it's inevitable but watching it unfold is like watching a train wreck happen um i i really love this movie for a number of different reasons one again georgie romero was just on top of his game in the 70s um everything from the lighting in this movie to the cinema is really epically done i also love the zombie kind of design um that it's not quite night of the living dead you're not dealing with people that have been decomposing for a long time you're just dealing with extremely hysterical crazy homicidal people and so you get a little bit more of the you know up close and personal feeling and all these people exist in this small town so they all know each other and it creates just unbelievably sort of heartbreaking but also insanely over the top interpersonal dramas i definitely think that this movie deserves a high spot on the list number one because this, again the cinematography and i love the lighting um but two the screenplay for this just seems to follow such a perfect formula and I know a lot of movies after the crazies tried to emulate kind of this type of tone and I don't feel like they ever actually got there but they developed you know sort of like splinter ideas off of this particular film so for my number four I'm sorry for my number three spot the crazies from 1970 what did i say this was 1973 i believe um george a romero has to have a spot on my list so there you go that's my number three well then i guess uh whew, i have i haven't seen the original crazies but i have seen the remake. did i lose you again no no i'm here <laughs> but you uh i guess Technical difficulties again. Yep. So we're going to try that again with Jen. Sorry, folks. Um, second. Second bit. One more time. Apparently that was the second time. Second where, time. Where did that leave off? Uh, no, you were here the whole time. Oh, okay. You well, couldn't I, hear me. Everybody can hear you, time. but um, you just couldn't hear me. Darn it. I hate it when that happens. Okay. Um, it's I'm not ignoring you, I promise. <laughs> just technology. Well, I was just saying I haven't seen the original Crazies, but I did see the remake. Uh, you know, and I mean, the remake does a fairly good job of following <clears throat> the Romero uh, um, 
idea is in terms of the adaptation, it kind of works. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but Timothy Oliphant crushes it in that. I mean, he, I love him in that particular movie, but the original has a kind of George A. Romero charm that is just different. I mean, you can really see it in his directorial style. You can really tell the difference. So if you like George Romero, you should really watch the original. I do dig some Romero on occasion. Yeah. Well, you ready for my number two? Number two. The movie's so good that it couldn't be number one. Okay, that I guess that wasn't as funny as I thought in my head. <laughs> okay, now it was funny because <laughs> now that you thought it was funny and it wasn't funny, now it's hilarious. Yes, go ahead. Been there a lot. Um, <laughs> my my number two also um, brought to us by a a lot would say legendary director. I'm not inclined to disagree with that statement. I've seen quite a few of his films, this being one of them. I'm uh, talking about Stanley Kubrick in 1971's A Clockwork Orange. Mm, that almost made my list. Well, then you know exactly. Of course, you've seen A Clockwork Orange. I know I'm not bringing anything new to the table for you this week. But uh, you know that when it comes to uh, style, A Clockwork Orange has it in spades. The the iconic look of um, the Droogs and the, the music uh, throughout... It's all very uh, memorable, I, I guess you could say. Stanley Kubrick has a, a way of tying all of your senses into a scene. Um, I guess not smell, but sometimes I feel like I can smell things. <laughs> That's just how good he is sometimes. And there are... You know, there, there's a lot of conversation about this movie, um, about what it may or may not glorify, or or uh, some of the some of the messages or the imagery that it sends. It's to me, it's always been about you know one free will and what you choose to do and how you choose to do it, whether or not that should be you know ever impeded. Um, and also, uh, as what the, the minister points out, you know, sometimes, sometimes goodness is, is you know, it's great. Being, being a good person is great. Um, but it has to come from, from the person and not from the programming. Um, I think it, it's really the point that is trying to, to be gotten to and to see the the transition of a violent horny you know young man and um watch his watch his mind just not be changed because it's not but it's sort of programmed not sort of it, it literally is programmed to to hate the things that he loved before because it would make him a 
better fit for society? And there, there are a lot of deep questions here that would, you know, take not just an entire podcast, but probably an entire series of podcasts to, to accurately break down, you know, all of these different discussions that get brought up in this film. But I will say that the the science fiction of, of programming people and, you know, really, really focusing on uh, the aggressors rather than the victims, like a lot of, like a lot of films do, uh, you know, focus on the victims and, and how they get their, their revenge and how the aggressors get their comeuppance to kind of flip that around um, and, and, and follow the mentality of the opposite side you're used to is, is one of the reasons why a clockwork orange stands alone in a lot of ways and, and makes it truly unique in cinema. And I don't, I don't just mean the, the point of view from an antagonist or anything like that, but I mean to really bear down on people that are doing no good just for the sake of doing no good in, in hardly even a comical way, just really bad stuff. Um, sets a sets a tone and tells a story that I'm hard pressed to even think of someone that tried to truly emulate it to this day. And that's why Clockwork Orange uh, is my number two. All right. That is a good choice. Um, uh, I feel like that is definitely a masterpiece of the 1970s and Stanley Kubrick definitely has sort of a, almost a lock on a lot of, you know, really excellent cinema in the 60s and the 70s. Um, but I will say that, you know, the, a clockwork oranging, a clockwork oranging, oh my gosh, I think I need more coffee. Clockwork orange has the effect on people even to this day that they are deeply disturbed and troubled by it. Um, and the cinematic themes in there, including rape and a lot of extremely difficult topics to deal with are harsh. They're extremely harsh. It, it makes epic science fiction though. I mean, it really does. And I do sometimes think it's amazing where, when I look back at all of these films, we've come, we have come so far from that kind of stuff. And yet A Clockwork Orange still has such a profound impact on people. Um, okay, my uh, number two movie is uh, a movie that I think personally is the epitome of 1970s films. Um, you know, this movie did not get very good ratings and even still people, you know, it has its own cult following, but people aren't, you know, exactly like, oh, yay, we're going to go watch this movie. Um, you know, it gets like 30% on, or, you know, 30 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes and even Metacritic doesn't have it coming in very high. But I feel like this movie is definitely the 70s right up in front um, it's called Ret Battle for the Planet of the Apes, not Return, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Um, and, you know, part of the reason that I think that this movie has such an interesting aspect is, first of all, you know, we know that Planet of the Apes is actually Earth. Uh, we know that, you know, the apes themselves are really 
the evolution of humanity, which is also super interesting. Um, but we find out that there is a, um, we find out that there is something absolutely insidious happening with the control of the armies, the, the, you know, different factions. And of course, you know, there's all of the kind of really good and yet really terrible ideas of, um, bringing to light racism and prejudice and you know the chimps don't trust the gorillas and the gorillas don't trust anybody um there's militants there's you know the peacemakers there's all kinds of stuff and meanwhile humans are kind of bumped into a nothing it's all very i think um fascinating by itself just in terms of the mythology for planet of the apes but what I think makes this so 70s on point is the idea that we somehow created an entire race, I guess that's the best way to say it, or races, in order to show how ridiculous our own human behaviors can be, made it impactful um, and it, while being entertaining. And part of me feels like that was the true gift of the 70s. The true gift of the 70s was sort of putting everything out in plain sight for us to be entertained by while basically chastising us and saying, you fools, why are you doing this? Here's the results. You can see it pretty clearly. And, uh, you know, in some ways, a lot of science fiction in the 1970s that we brought to film really had that kind of, you know, shame, shame aspect to it. Like, pay attention or these bad things are going to happen. It wasn't, you know, quite so hopeful uh, a note like, you know, the later 1980s and even into the 90s were with, um, hey, space exploration could be great and we could go do fabulous things. And on the planet in, you know, science fiction, we could cure world hunger. We could do without soil and green. Uh, we could do amazing things. So I'm I'm choosing this movie because and it gets a very high mark for me because I think that it above all other movies, except for my number one pick really gives us this idea of what it was like to live in the seventies altogether. Not that there were a bunch of monkeys running around, but that we were factioned, that we were militant. Oh, wait a minute. Is that today? I mean, the lessons from these movies really transport, well, transport, they really transcend the time period from the 70s even into today. But in the 70s, I feel like it was really punctuated by our fiction, whereas today we kind of move a little bit away from that. We're a lot more nuanced about our criticism of society. Um, and for that, I think we owe a great deal of respect for just being so forthright and out there, but also uh, Planet of the Apes. I don't know how you go wrong with Planet of the Apes. It's just a good, good franchise. And this particular one, I think, really works in exposing all of our weaknesses. So number two, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Okay. Oh, um... I just said it again. I didn't mean Beneath. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I, I meant to say battle and i said beneath i don't remember if this is one that i've seen i know i haven't um, seen them all 
this is let's see if i can give you a um let's see if i can give you something that you might remember um well there's a big war in this one um between the the military factions and kind of like the scientists Maybe. No, not striking a. Maybe. What year was it? This one was 1973, I believe. Um, there's mutant humans in this one. So I... it's not quite the same as some of the other ones where we just have, like, you know, basic humans that are sort of not, you know, they're just like normal humans. This one has mutant humans in it. No, I, I don't think I have seen this one. Oh, okay. Well, this one is this one is definitely worth seeing, um, but it's not. It it I would say that it's not on the. It, it does have a grand scale, but it's a different grand scale than the other movies. The other movies are a lot more um, entertaining, I think, because they are not as, like I said, you know, they're not as like. Uh, shame inducing like it really it kind of feels bad in some ways to watch this movie and realize that oh you know god this is actually how we behave because it's just so called out in some of the other movies it's a lot more entertaining because it kind of feels like we're a bit little bit more removed from who the apes are and it's like not quite as like in your face so i do think it's worth watching seems i've seen the one before it Conquest, of Conquest the of the Planet of, of, the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one I've seen. That's a good one. There's another one in this series where they actually are worshiping an atomic weapon, and I think that that is beneath the Planet of the Apes. And that one also is very '70s in its tone because, again, you know, atomic weapons, radiation. There's like this cult behavior around the atomic uh, bomb itself. But they don't recognize it as being an atomic bomb because they it's too far into the future. They don't understand it. But the but the humans that do recognize it are like, are you crazy? You know, so uh, there's a lot of good 70s themes in the Planet of the Apes franchise that are infinitely worth exploring. Well, I'm going to. Yeah, my number one. Are you ready? I am so ready. Okay. You know, we we mentioned earlier you know, at the top that we thought there might be some crossover. And so far, just the one. I've only had the one crossover. That's right. And it would be crazy if, if our second crossover was, you know, both of our number ones. I doubt it. But it would be crazy. But my number one... Is from 1975, directed by Paul Bartel, produced by Roger Corbin. Death Race 2000. Ooh, good choice. I, but the first time I saw this movie, I absolutely fell in love. It's about a cross-country race uh, in a sort of dystopian America. Uh, set in the year 2000, where <laughs> the idea is, you know, you want to get points, right? It's not just a race to to get to the next place 
quickest. No, you get points. And how do you get points? By running over the citizens. And you would think, what wouldn't that start a panic in the streets? Well, not in the way you'd think, because <laughs> the people are totally down for it. They they line up their their you know elderly, they're sick, and sometimes just people they don't like to be um, run over by their favorite racers. And all of this is, you know, like like you said before, there were there were a lot of uh, running themes and. You know, one of those, you know, overpopulations, lack of resources. So, you know, people got to find a way to thin the herd, so to speak. And corporate greed. Corp- yeah, there you go. Um, and, and the government came up with this road race where, you know, well, we're just going to run over the people. <laughs> and depending on the type of person you run over, you know, you get a, an allotment of points. But, of course, it wouldn't just be a in my opinion, the greatest 70s sci-fi film, uh, if it was just that. No, of course, there's some some complexity, some layers. There's some, you know, anti-government um, stuff going on. It's it's rebellion in, in, in the midst of the race as, you know, they're trying to sort of uh, fight back against... Uh, what's going on and it, it becomes sort of the, the lead uh, David Carradine uh, you know Frankenstein uh, becomes sort of a, a rallying uh, point for the people because he is you know the people's racer and has been through Many a battle in the cars. By the way, the cars, amazing. It's, it's, I, I can't think of anything before this that you really saw where the driver's personality is sort of reflected in, in like their vehicle. Like it was optimized <clears throat> for Road a specific. Warrior. Mad Max. Well, that was 79. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this was 75. Oh, oh, I see. I see. Okay. So if you, if you get a chance, Google, you know, just watch the movie. Watch the movie, Death Race 2000. Uh, so and good. If you want to see a young Sylvester Stallone. And a young David Carradine. A young David Carradine. It's, it's amazing from start to finish. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give you this little this little tidbit. You can watch it on Tubi. There you go. I'm giving I'm giving you a place to watch it. If you haven't seen it, I'm begging you watch Death Race 2000. And not, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't think the remake worked uh, at all was because they took away one of the most fun aspects, which was a cross country race where people run over, you know, the citizens. Instead, it's like this oh, we're going to race around the prison. Not nearly as as fun. I'm just gonna put there, unless pedestrians are being hit, it's just not nearly as fun. So, uh, Death Race 2000 is the number one sci-fi uh, film from the 70s, Earthbound uh, period. 
and I think it, it's going to be your number one too. Um, so, okay. So here's something that's interesting. Okay. Um, in, I'm going to say that a lot of the movies that we chose would definitely cut for mystery science theater 3000. Um, I mean, they could definitely be mystery science theater mm -hmm. fodder. Um, but that doesn't make them any less relevant or kind of uh, interesting in their own right. And I say that because sometimes I think that we see cheesy movies with, you know, weird special effects and we go, that's awful. And we relegate it to some kind of vault where we will never think about it again um, or make fun of it and mock it. And and I think that there's a place for that because I love mystery science theater, so bring it on. But I also think that sometimes, like, you have to look at the historical record of a film um, genre, especially during specific decades that, you know, brought about certain types of tropes and changes and things, and really examine them for what they are, which, you know, you, again, you can think that they're funny and you can call them comedy and sometimes they really are you know sort of like campy b movies but I, th I feel like all the movies that we presented tonight definitely have a place in history in in cinema history especially and they stand out as being really representative of this particular decade so uh, you know Again, I do feel like they were kind of crazy, but also really good. And to answer your question, ding, 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 Death Race was actually my number one. Wait, and what? Death Race is my number one movie. What? Yeah. How about that? Um, and here's, this is, this is why I chose Death Race as being, I think, one of the best ideas the best 1970s movie um first of all i am no big fan of sylvester stallone um but i i yeah whatever but that's personal as an actor sylvester stallone gets it a lot he has an on-screen presence that jumps off the screen and it and it makes you feel instantly connected in some way, whether that's good or whether it's bad. Um, and that takes a lot of acting chops to get there. David Carradine, who I had only ever known from uh, the Kung Fu series, absolutely crushes it as Frankenstein. And the whole idea behind the saga of death race which continues on even to today is not just the idea that hey you know there's corporations that are leading sort of the charge in changing how we feel but it also again deals with the lack of resources the hysteria over whether or not there are going to be too many people in the world, which was a real fear. I mean, they've had population counters forever. And at some point, one of the biggest like political sort of issues was, oh my God, 
uh, the world is getting too populated and we're never going to be able to sustain all these people. Everybody is just going to die off in a mass extinction. Um, and, and that particular piece, I think, was um, really well demonstrated in Death Race. But on top of that, Death Race, from a, from a 70s perspective, has some of the best car chases that I think are have had been done since then or up to then. You're right. Except that then we get to uh, George Miller and then everything, all bets are off. But in terms of what we get before that, um, the cinema in this is just absolutely awesome. I, I will say that the dialogue in Death Race is not great. I mean, eh, you know, don't be looking for any like, you know, there's nothing super profound happening. But what but the profound, I think, thing that is happening is in the storyline. It's definitely in the actions and reactions that people have to what's going on. And the other reason that I love it is because in the 70s, we had this very gray area and it was a huge gray area. And I loved that about 70s sim cinema. Today, we have a very black and white representation. You know if your protagonist is sort of like on the right side or on the wrong side. And that's why movies nowadays that do the crossover trick make us go, oh my God, I thought he was good and actually he was bad. Or I thought she was wonderful and actually she's horrible. In the 70s, there's this huge gray area where characters could exist as protagonists and antagonists. And there wasn't the same kind of... Um, well, I should say there was. There was a big chunk of moral ambiguity attached to them. And I feel like that is kind of what happens in a lot of the Death Race movies. Um, yes, choices are made. And yes, we can see that there are some over-the-top villains. But then there's a lot of people that are just sort of stuck in these areas where they have to make these moral decisions that are horrific. They're terrible. Um, and the original Death Race just does it so well really 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 well um and i will definitely say that like josh said um the set and sets all together including inside the cars are absolutely fabulous i mean you really feel like there is something very high stakes going on you cannot watch this movie and feel like it's just you're just a passive observer everything feels like it's in your face so uh, great choice for number one that also was my number one and I feel like this was a great list. Yeah. How did that happen? That's never they happened can't... before. I know, right? Good choice. Good choice. Um, just to remind everybody, uh, when Jen and I make our list, there's no, you know, chat about what we're doing. We're not dropping hints. We're we're not communicating about what's our on our list at all other than to say oh i think you know you're gonna like my list or um i'm like i'm i'm pretty sure you're going to you know bring uh, a powerful list and that's that's pretty much the gist of it and yep. here we are saying number one which, okay, which decidedly, you know, had a greater chance of happening simply because the list of science fiction films in the 70s that aren't in space, it's it's a smaller list than, you, it's a smaller source than usual. Yeah, you're right, you're right. But, but even still, it's still pretty, it's still pretty amazing. 
on the same page. Yeah. Wow. So do you want to go through your list and remind us, recap your your top picks? Sure, sure. Uh, my number 10 was Gas. <laughs> or <laughs> It Became Necessary to Destroy the World in Order to Save It, a 1970 Roger Corman film. Uh, number nine, Attack for the Killer Tomatoes from John DeBello, 1978. Uh, number eight, Mad Max, 1979, directed by George Romero. Wait, I mean Miller. <laughs> I know, I made that mistake. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I've lost count now. Number huh? seven. Uh, I can't count to ten. Um, number seven, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, directed by Jim Sharman, uh, 1975. Uh, number six, 1978, directed by Richard Donner. It's Superman. Number five. So green is people. 1973, directed by Richard Fleischer. Uh, Soylent Green. Uh, number four, uh, 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, brought to us by Steven Spielberg, uh, fancy Frenchman. Uh, number three. Uh, Nicholas Meyer's Time After Time from 1979. Uh, number two, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange from 1971. And number one, directed by Paul Bartel, 1975's Death Race 2000. So that is my top ten. Jen, tell us how we got to your number one. Okay, my top my number 10 is split between Invasion of the Bee Girls and Empire of the Ants. Please go see Empire of the Ants. You'll love it. Uh, number nine, Damnation Alley. Number eight, Blue Christmas. Has nothing to do with Christmas, but you'll love it anyway. Number seven, Demon Seed. Number six, Phantasm. Number five, Mad Max. Number four, The Andromeda Strain. Number three, The Crazies. Number two, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, and number one, Death Race. How did we do that? <laughs> How did we do that? <clears throat> sorry. 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 Okay. It's just, uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. That's so, <laughs> so mind-blowing. Ah, wow. Okay. okay. So what are we doing for next week? Well, next week, next week, I think next week's uh, list is going to make you put on your thinking cap. Uh oh. And here is the reason why. Okay, let me let me be honest. I I had a, a topic all ready to go, but next week, I'm, I'm I think I'm gonna. This is like a last second change up. Because next week will be the 11th. Uh, correct? Yep. So uh, next week is the 11th. And on the 16th, there's, a, there's this guy you know who's got a birthday. It's me. Yay. I'm that guy. And I thought, you know what? We can go back to that other list anytime. So next week, rather than doing what I had written down, 
we're going to do something super self-indulgent. In honor of me, we're going to do our top 10 movies from the year I was born, 1982. Hmm. Well, that's going to be a small list. It just needs to be 10. Yeah. No, I'm saying there's going to be a small number. Um, do you have any parameters on this? Is there anything like... Um, you could say only movies that I, you might think I like. <laughs> yeah. No, just, um, just from the year 1982. Hmm. So, for my birthday, include okay. Well, I think I have a good idea. Um, and actually, this sort of yeah, this kind of works with some other things. So, okay, all right, I got some ideas. Like I said, it's it's incredibly self indulgent, it, it doesn't follow any particular theme. Um, I suppose I could have done best birthday movies um but i already said the 82 thing so i kind of wish i thought of the birthday thing first to be honest um so yeah best movies from 1982 it looks like i already know what your number one is but i'm not gonna say it right now uh i can tell you right now that my number one movie is a foreign film really so take with that what you may yep most definitely. So when we get to announce our list, can we say they're here? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. <sighs> uh, you know, not foreshadowing anything. I'm just saying <laughs> that might be uh, uh, appropriate. So well, I know how you love to talk about the world according to Garp. Oh. Yeah, that was such a good book. It was such a weird movie, but that was such a good book. Yeah, just uh, kind of randomly pulled that. <laughs> just trying to make... Yeah, so... Um, Genius Robin Williams, by the way. Genius. Now I, I feel like I have to watch it. Oh, man. that was I mean, for what it was, Robin Williams just kicked it. And so did... Uh, what's his name? As the uh, As the football player. Oh, God, this, it was an interesting film. Very interesting. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to check that out. Because I just looked at it randomly. I, I didn't know anything about the movie itself. You know, I just, yeah. Okay, well. My, um, my kid sometimes laughs at me and asks me if there are movies that I haven't seen. And the answer is, yes, there's many. But I have seen a lot of movies. So. <laughs> okay. All right. You know, so it's weird about Letterboxd. I I have uh, I'm closing in on 2,500 movies lifetime that I remember, hmm. but I'm pretty sure if you signed up and tried to um, not only find every movie you watched and give them a star rating, but you know accumulate them and and make sure that everything is all proper, your number would absolutely destroy mine but i would probably never hear from you again because it would take a very long time also i am a little bit older than you josh so that may account for some of the movies that i have also seen 
uh, more. But also, I did go to school and studied filmmaking. And so mm -hmm. during that period, I was immersed in movies from the, the early period of movie making up until, you know, the time that I was in college. So it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And it, I mean, that's carried with me for my entire life. You know what carries with me? What's that? I'm wondering how to make a meal uh, as it pertains to one of my favorite films. Like, if I wanted someone to tell me a recipe, if you will, for our favorite 1970s Earthbound sci-fi movie, Death Race 2000, where would one get ideas for that? Well, hey, I don't actually have one for Death Race 2000, although I will definitely consider putting something up. But I do have one for The Omega Man, which also was a 1970s science fiction movie, which was absolutely hilarious and also kind of fun. Uh, and The Omega Man, the recipe for that is the Omega symbol made of bread. And I did these really awesome uh, marinara sauce in these little shots <laughs> it turned out so cute so anyway yes you can head over to moviesandmeals.com i have a little something for most things even if your genre is not completely uh there with every movie that you want hey send me a message and let me know what you'd like to see and i'll try to get on it uh also we have a lot of updating that we are still doing from the holidays so just you know be patient i'm getting there um you can also find me on thursday nights so tomorrow tomorrow and i am announcing this so that he has no chance to back out uh i am going to have a special guest host kinte my friend Kinte is going to join us on the show. We're going to talk about things that are happening in the year 2023. We're also going to talk about the continuing decline of the streaming services and why they are imploding so fast right now. And we're going to talk about some things that have been renewed, canceled, and that are just sort of upcoming. Um, I think it's going to be a good show. I think we're going to actually cover a lot of ground and maybe we'll, you know, inject some ideas of shows that you hadn't even heard of that maybe you'll want to see. So join us for that Thursday at 8.30. Very, very cool. Right here also on Watco Media, just, you know, in case you were wondering. It's not out there in the Ethernet. It's actually here. Yeah. Well, if you're wondering about little old me, I suppose, um, you would go to watcomedia.com. That's where you find all the links to the stuff. And on Friday nights, um, you know, after you've come down from the amazing lists we've created and after you've heard all of the amazing commentary on the, the state of television in the world today, then Friday nights is a chance for me to sneeze off mic. And uh, Friday nights is there for the podcast this week. Episode number 115. Finally, we've uh, last week Brandon was feeling a little bit under the weather, so I took that opportunity to help my dad celebrate his birthday. And uh, you know, we didn't do the show, but this week when well, we should definitely be on target for our usual 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific slide, and we should be talking about hey, I'm actually gonna talk about what we're gonna talk about crazy it's just one of those days isn't it um no we're going to talk about this question that's been kind of 
burning in the back of my mind, especially since the release of Avatar, The Way of Water. Is it and what question... are they doing? At... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I had to inject my what are they doing at Time Warner Cable? Uh, or what are they doing at Time Warner? Not even Time Warner Cable. Um, just because that's the burning question that I'm asking. But okay, go ahead. Yes. No, our, <laughs> our question is, <laughs> when it comes to lists, you know, we do lists. We know a little bit about lists. But when it comes to lists of the best movies, the greatest movies, movies of all time, how come it doesn't correlate with the highest gross, grossing movies of all time? Some would question. think they should be one and the same. After all, if it's made the most money, it's got to be the best, right? Well, we're going to go into why that may or may not be the case. And uh, we'll be doing that Friday night on the Wadcast episode number 115. That's exciting. That's fun. actually a good question. I like it. Hopefully we'll be able to, we'll be able to break it down in a uh, fun and engaging manner. And if anybody wants to... You know, watch along live with uh, leave some live commentary in the chats for any of our shows. By all means, join us. Don't don't you don't, you don't have to just download the podcast. Just show up on a Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday night, and we are more than happy to to not only read your comments but show them on screen and you know actively engage with you, especially for ten to one where I'm think i'm speaking for for both of us when i say we would love to know what some of your selections are for these lists and we'd also like to know what some of your ideas are for lists so if you have any ideas for lists not that we've run out i promise <laughs> we haven't run out just to, to to make it a little more interactive to have you the audience more involved in the show if you have anything you'd like to, uh, to talk about by all means feel free to shoot that our way um, whether it's the Facebook page or the YouTube, you know, whatever the case may be, just, you know, leave the comment and we will check it out and see if we can come up with uh, 10 movies that fit your obscure list. I think that would be a fun challenge to just to have yeah. us both have to try and, you know, figure it out. Movies where they bake a bread. Ooh, not bad. That's not I mean, bad. That's a that's a pandemic kind of a you know. Hey, let's retrospectively look back on all the movies where they bake bread. Movies where at least two characters are actively playing Monopoly. Oh, I'm sure that happens more often than we think. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can imagine. I'm not sure where I would begin with that list, though. But yeah, yeah, that's delightfully obscure. So if you have any of those kinds of ideas, by all means, and uh, not those though, because I just said them, so they wouldn't be your ideas. That would just be <laughs> well. I guess that's going to do it for us here tonight. Um, wow. Just looking at the runtime. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we took it to the limit. We had a lot to talk about. Yes, we did. More more than I thought we would. Uh, I thought uh, I would 
not have nearly as much to say about 70 science fiction earthbound films as i did but you know i i impressed myself a little bit nice you made a great list good job josh i think you did as well and of course you never fail to uh impress me because jen's awesome and thank you that's why we have such a great show i super appreciate that thank you so much i have such but, a good time on that show but we do have to get out of here indeed so um thank you everybody for joining us that joined us and thank you all if you're listening at a later date don't forget to rate review subscribe and all of that awesome stuff um i'm jen that's uh that's josh over there and uh, <laughs> uh we'll catch you next week say say good night jen have a good night good night